Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, joining us here in a studio, we have Michael Holland of Holland and Company. And Michael, I'm wondering if I could just ask you to cast your mind back, because I was thinking about this, knowing you were coming on, and I was thinking about Louis Rukeyser and Wall Street Week. And I'm wondering if you can offer some thoughts about why being an investor and being interested in the stock market, particularly, not we'll get to the bond market in a second, but the stock market used to be fun and there was no real animosity involved in the back and forth between the government and regulators and investors and activists and so on. There was some of that. But what in your mind has changed? Because you've lived through this. Boy, that's a that's a really tough question, Tim. I, I, I'm trying to make it easy at this time. Yeah, of the yeah. we should have at least given you another cup of coffee before <laughs> He's got that the one. Coffee. No, but, but, but that casts his mind. Talking about a... very heavy stuff, the polarity in in, in the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, electorate in terms of Republicans versus you know Democrats, and then you then you have bulls versus bears. I mean, it's it's a it's a nasty environment around the world in a lot of ways. Having said that. I, I, I look back at the at the year just ending, and we had such a, a relatively quiet, peaceful marketplace in terms of most asset categories, and without, as you've re- report every day, without a great deal of volatility in the meantime, not just uh, in, inexorably moving higher, which is always pleasant for people or long, which most of us are, um, but also uh, no no scares during the year despite the bad headlines. So you've you had a real conundrum for people who like to be bearish and negative during the year. Um, so, so far as, as how nice things were, I think the good old days most of the time weren't all that good, uh, even though now they're old. Uh, so it seems better looking back for the, for, there are probably some people who don't, who don't even have a clue who Louis Rukeyser was, but 20 years ago, 10 years ago, he, he was one of the icons in, in broadcast. He was the, actually the original um, uh, great financial journalist because he was pretty much on his own. He was on PBS and when there were only three networks. So he, he had a huge, m- many millions of viewers every week, and he had people come on the show who, uh, by and large, were very helpful to investors in terms of how they put money to work. And, and it was very educational, and he did it with humor. And I think Bloomberg, to some extent, has a little bit of that uh, 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 I- I- ideology where you, you keep it interesting, and if not very funny. Well, it's interesting, too, that I wonder if investors are better served by the plethora, if you will, of opinions and coverage. I mean, I think about when I started doing business news, there wasn't a lot. There weren't many competing entities, if you will, in terms of covering you know, business news. Is it better for investors now? Uh, quick answer, Carol. I, I, I think yes. I, I like because people then can pick and choose and when things don't work, they can reject them. Uh, so I'm always for choice and options. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And yet it there is a cacophony, I think is the right word, of things coming at people. Right. So if they're not educated as to how to pick the right ones, it, it can be a, a, an injurious thing. And does the infrastructure support the retail investor as much as the institutional investor at this point? Well... The retail investor actually has more information than she or he has ever had that 
as you as your question implies, that's not necessarily a good thing. Right. Um, but if uh, if they can get some guidance from some people like Bloomberg. Okay, whatever. Here, wait, here. Or Michael, the, or Michael Holland. Read the sign like I'm No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, 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 but fair. But but, but it's fair. Yeah. Find some people who, who can at least guide you into places where you can get But you know what I'm saying yes. in terms of I don't necessarily have the ability to trade as quickly as an institutional investor does. Yeah. Um, or, and you may not want to. Or I may not want to, right. So I guess I'm wondering, is it still skewed more in favor of institutional investors? The quick answer, most people who are out of the stock market say it's a rigged game. They've said that for years, that, that the institutions and the professionals have the edge. There's, It's never been truer in terms of short-term trading because of all the hookups from the electronic things. Mm-hmm. And, and the, so there's no question that on a very short-term basis, it is rigged. Yes, I, I actually believe that. No, I'm going to get some some uh, people uh, yelling at me on, on that. But it's Happy it, New Year, Michael Holland. <laughs> <laughs> but... But to Pim's response when you were asking the question, Carol, longer term, whether it's Warren Buffett or Louis Rukeyser or Benjamin Graham, Mm -hmm. uh, the great people in the business have figured out that the right way to do this game is to play it for the long ball. And you stay in it to win it, meaning you, you find great investments and you stay with them until there's a reason not to own them. And the great fortunes that I've observed over the decades that I've been in the business have been people who've identified that and stayed with it and didn't trade them. Is uh, is there one particular investment that you could name and describe how long you've had it in terms of, is it a decade long or two decades? I mean, you know, you can always meet people yeah. that say, oh yeah, you know, I have my original McDonald's stock and I'm never going to sell it. Uh, lucky enough to have actually followed what what I just was talking about, Pim. So yeah, I do own. Here we are with many assets at their highs of of our lifetime. So I do owe things, own things, and have owned for decades. Things we talked earlier on television about. I finally sold GE over mm-hmm. the past year, but I had owned that forever. I I do own J.P. Morgan, which I which I started out working at uh, as as a, as a young buck. Uh, I think during the Civil War or something like that, and. I also, you know, stocks like Microsoft, Apple, you know, Forrest Gump, okay? So I've been able to to own things and stay with them because I haven't had a reason to sell them. I owned Oracle back in the dot-com days. It had gone up so much over an 18-month period, I had to sell it. I've never been able to get back in because it, it that was one of the few times when it just went so stratospheric in terms of stock price. But, yeah, I do own things and have owned them for decades. Thank you. But is that problematic then with a name like General Electric that got hammered this year uh, and has had some rough years? I mean, you talk to people, right? I mean, in holding things, like when do you know, though, that, wait a minute, while I am a long-term investor, it is time to get out. Yeah, it's not problematic, Carol. It's very rational. There's a point at which you know that that what you bought is no longer there. And either the value or, or or the price and, right. and the value, meaning the which, the intrinsic value of the company, and if the intrinsic value of the company is it, it had been eroded, unfortunately, by events or by actions, um, but whatever it was, um, and and years ago, IBM the same way for me. I you know after uh, you know, multiple multiple quarters of down revenues, and why were the revenues down? And what in the meantime, Microsoft is is doing things in the cloud that are so. As you said earlier on television, mm. you, you have options as as so. You don't have to own a company that is no longer what you you should get rid of it. So it's not problematic at all. It's mm. the right thing to do. Should we be concerned about an upcoming election in Italy? 
quick answer, Pim, was no. Carol and I discussed that a little yeah, bit earlier. And, and the fact is that, that Europe has been a pleasant surprise over the past year. And I don't think Italy rises to the level of um, uh, of something that is going to upset the, the the pleasant situation in Europe. And I, the phrase was used uh, earlier uh the investors in Italy, for example, have been vaccinated against political instability. And I think that's a great phrase. I think to some extent that's the case. You know, we could be surprised, but I, that, that's not where I would bet right now that, that it would cause that. No issues with the euro and any of the political parties that uh, have already stated, you know, they want a referendum on the euro. And then uh, you have uh, this big divide between wealth in the north and uh, less yeah. wealth in the south. Yes. And Always to be watched. At this point, it doesn't look as if it, to use your word, is is for investors problematic. But to to be to be to be watched for sure. Does Europe continue to be an area of opportunity, investment opportunity? We've we've heard that play easily over the last year mm-hmm. or so because evaluation certainly cheaper than what we you know look at like in the U.S. market. Is that continuing to be an area of opportunity next year? The wind at the back of of those investments looks to be continuing carol so i i would stay i'm I'm there and i would i would stay with it uh, at least for now it it looks it still looks promising on a relative valuation basis for sure michael holland always fun to have you on happy new year happy new year and uh take care of yourself michael holland chairman of holland and company joining us here on bloomberg surveillance I want to switch gears a little bit and talk um, a little bit more about um, the tax legislation that has passed because I think we continue to pour over it and talk about uh, the implications uh, for individuals. Joining us right now is Chris Edwards. He's Cato Director of uh, Cato Institute, Director of Tax Policy Studies, uh, also editor of uh, www.downsizinggovernment.org. Org, And he says in an editorial, he says the media has gotten the GOP tax plan wrong and that rather than being a windfall for the wealthy, that it really is giving the largest relative cuts to the middle class. Chris, good to have you here with Pim and myself. Explain your argument. Um, the It's true that higher income people will get larger dollar cuts. And um, I think a lot of stories have stressed that and argued sort of that the rich are going to get the highest benefits. But if you actually look at how much income tax people pay now and you look at how much these tax cuts are as a, as a percent of how much uh, income tax they pay now, it really is the middle uh, going to get the biggest cuts. For example, I mean, people right in the middle, say fifty dollars to $75,000 a year, they may get, you know, a 25% or so tax cut, a huge cut. I mean, but the truth is they don't actually pay much federal income tax now. People um, higher over $100,000 may get a 10% cut or so. So, uh, you know, the uh, people in the middle, they they maybe only pay a few thousand dollars of income tax now, but they're going to get, you know, a substantial tax cut of $500 or more, which they will probably notice next year. Chris Edwards, could you just share with us some maybe even uh, personal anecdote or, or history that has informed your thinking about economics? Because previously I note that you were a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee. You were a manager with Price Waterhouse Coopers. And, you know, one of the things that happens when big pieces of legislation uh, become uh, a de facto law is, is, you know, there are 
both arguments on each side, or many sides rather, for the positive and negative effects. What, what has influenced you in terms of how you look at tax policy? Well, that's actually an easy question because I, so I spent five years in the Washington National Tax Service of PricewaterhouseCoopers here in Washington. Uh, they deal with all the big, you know, all the biggest multinationals and the corporate tax planning they do. And I was just really struck then. Uh, this is this is 15 years ago about how responsive big corporations are to tax changes uh, and how important that tax rate is. So uh, when I came to the Cato Institute 16, 17 years ago, I started writing about this issue, about how other countries, uh, our major trading partners, were cutting their corporate tax rate. And that was really having a big uh, influence on the investment decisions of the biggest corporations, as well as the avoidance decisions. I mean, the big multinationals, as we all know now, they go to extreme lengths to move profits out of the highest tax countries. So uh, it has struck me for a long time that I think that both the government and businesses and the economy, we can all be winners by lowering our corporate tax rate. You get less corporate tax cheating. You get more investment here. I think it's a win-win for the U.S. economy. Chris, we talked about this earlier on Bloomberg television, and I hear what you're saying, and, and many might argue or many would argue that it is good that we're bringing down the corporate tax rate, although many companies had really smart accountants uh, so that their effective tax rate was even lower than the new rate that's been put out there. Um, so there is that argument as well. What I'm curious about, though, is what are companies going to do with the money, the extra money that they're going to have by paying a reduced rate? Will it be put in the pockets of workers or will it be put back into the pockets of kind of the key executives uh, by doing buybacks and dividends and shoring up those earnings per share numbers, certainly when we talk about publicly held companies? Well, to go to your first comment first, though, the difference between the statutory federal rate of, uh, or legal rate of 35, and you're right, many companies have lower average effective rates, maybe in the low 20s or so. But the important thing is that people shouldn't forget it is the legal or statutory rate that drives the tax avoidance. If you can move your profits out of the United States to Ireland or the Cayman Islands or somewhere else, you are saving at that 35% rate. So that is one of the reasons why lowering that legal rate is important. Businesses look at uh, cross-country investments, uh, they look at what's called the marginal effective rate. If you build a new factory here versus Mexico, you know, what is the, the government's take on that additional, you know, $100 million of investment? That's the important rate, and our marginal effective rate in the United States is high. I think if we reduce, the, you know, we have reduced the rate now, our marginal effective rate will fall. I think at the margin, there's going to be a lot more facilities that make sense building in the United States than China, than Mexico, then Canada. Uh, I think this will bring investment home. Chris, is there an example of another large developed economy that works better in terms of its connection with tax policy and economic performance and corporate behavior? Well, one of the you know one of the interesting things is, is as you know all our trading partners now have dropped their corporate tax rates, whether they're conservative governments or liberal governments in places like Canada and Britain and Ireland. Uh, the other countries have recognized that high, a high corporate tax rate you shoot yourself in the foot because you lose investment. So uh, I've, I've looked in detail, for example, at the, both the Canadians and Brits have uh, slashed their corporate tax rates, and looking at their government accounts, it doesn't appear that the governments have lost any money. It's kind of remarkable, and I think the explanation is the corporate multinationals cheat less on Canadian and British taxes now. 
how they invest more. And again, I think both the economy and the government ends up being a winner in this. Will we see the wages increase? For workers, something that, you know, with many things recovering off the financial crisis, this is something that has been not really kind of come back, if you will, from the financial meltdown. Uh, I think they I think they will now because of course the job market is uh, getting pretty tight with a low unemployment rate. Uh, hopefully the participation rate will start rising again as businesses invest more here and hire more workers. I think the problem in the future of the United States is not that we're going to have excess workers. We're going to have worker shortages with more and more people, uh, the baby boomers retiring, a smaller relative workforce. So I think this tax cut actually came at the right time here uh, to uh, boost investment to get more of those people. But wait a minute, uh, wait a minute, Chris. What about the increase in the deficit? I mean, we're talking about a trillion dollars plus at a time we're adding to the deficit when things are going actually fairly well. People will say corporate profits look pretty good. Corporate revenues look pretty good. What happens? It's an economic cycle. It's a market cycle. Things will turn down. Then what? Uh, I agree. The, deficit, the federal government deficit is a giant uh, problem. Uh, even without this tax cut, uh, the official projections so the government will add about $10 trillion in debt over the next 10 years. It's really kind of a crazy situation. We have to deal with that problem. I think with this tax cut, the business tax cuts will ultimately pay for themselves in the long run. The individual cuts, you know, they expire in 2025, and it's going to be up to voters and politicians down the road as to whether, you know, if they get the deficits under control, it might make sense to extend the, the, those individual tax cuts. If we don't, uh, you know, get the deficits under control with spending, then it may, we should uh, probably let these individual cuts expire, frankly. Uh, Chris Edwards, thanks so much for your time this morning. Uh, Cato Director of Tax Policy Studies, editor of www.downsizinggovernment.org, uh, joining us on the phone. Let's bring in our next guest. What do you think? Matt uh, Matt Brill. He is a senior portfolio manager for Invesco uh, and uh, Invesco Fixed Income, responsible for a variety of uh, credit strategies. Matt Brill, thanks very much for being with us. Great. Good morning. Um, let's begin, if you can, with your thoughts having to do with the Federal Reserve's reduction in its balance sheet. If the Federal Reserve is going to cut back on its buying, which it has already done, but it will accelerate in 2018, who's going to buy all those extra treasuries? <laughs> well, it starts with the foreigners, for one. So the foreigners have been a huge buyer of our of our market in terms of fixed income for the last several years. You, know, you continue to see rates in Europe as well as rates in Asia stay low. You've got about 40% of, of Europe actually has a negative yield still. About 20% of the globe has a negative yield. So we're still continuing to see inflows from them. And you're also starting to see the banks in the U.S. start to pick up a little bit of buying of mortgages as well. And you've seen, even with the, uh, the Fed pulling back and uh, starting to taper, that the mortgages haven't had any effect just yet. Um, are you anticipating, in terms of global central bank policy, are we going to kind of get off of this easy monetary policy? We've already started to see that with the Fed, but pull in uh, other central banks. Um, that seems to be the conversation that we're all having uh, when it comes to 2018. Well, it's a track we're on, but it's going to take a while. So it's sort of started in 2017 with the Fed. You're going to get the ECB really starting to roll out of things a little bit in the, in the first quarter of, of 2018. But then you're really not seeing anything out of Asia yet. So the Bank of Japan is going to continue to be very accommodative. So 
I think what a lot of people think is that you're getting tapering around the globe, but you're actually still seeing an expansion of balance sheets, and we'd expect that to continue until about 2019, and then you'll start to see that decline a little bit. So we're still really uh, you know, addicted to this QE at this point. Well, Matt, you mentioned having to do with foreigners buying a lot of our treasury debt. Would that entail an increase in the value of the U.S. dollar, or is that already been priced in? Well, a little bit of, of that is, is already priced in. We think that uh, you know you are starting to get a little bit of higher rates in the U.S. on the front end. At some point here, you're going to start to get it in Europe, and I think the surprises of growth in Europe have actually contained the uh, the dollar appreciation versus the euro. So the fact that you're getting growth out of Europe, that's really uh, been a little bit of a, of a headwind to the dollar appreciating over the past year. What about the – Oh, no, 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 go ahead, Pip, please. No, no, I was just going to quote that you give you the euro number, which is 119. I'm wondering whether you have any idea of what, it, what level do you think it would be uh, be trading at? Yeah, so we, we think you're a little bit range bound here between the 115 and 125. So at this point, I think you know 115 is probably a fair number to put on it. Hey, do you guys spend a lot of time at Invesco talking about the flattening U.S. yield curve? I mean, this is among one of our most read stories. Now, mind you, it's a little bit of a quiet week, um, but we have been, you know, following this uh, certainly late here uh, in the year as we watch this yield curve and, and trying to figure out is it, you know, an indication of something more ominous to come for the U.S. economy. Well, we do spend a lot of time talking about it. I think at this point, really, it's really more of a function of inflation. And so a lot of people really get obsessed with the Fed and how much the Fed is going to hike. But I like to point out that the Fed has now hiked five times, and yet you've only seen the 10-year Treasury rise by 10 basis points. Why is so, that? Is it just the Fed managing everybody so well? I, I think it's because there, there, there's literally no inflation in the U.S., no inflation in Europe, and no inflation in Asia. So, you know, that's due to technological innovation, we believe, also a, a function of demographics. So, Matt, Matt Brill, I got I to gotta jump in there because whenever I hear this, I feel like I am paying more for everything in my world. No, I'm, I'm well, I don't very know where serious. you're shopping. Maybe have you heard of Amazon.com? No, I yeah, I've got plenty of Amazon boxes coming into my house and Amazon Prime, and I I get that part of it. But you know, if you're paying for education anywhere, uh, you know, I just feel like there's a lot of things. Taxes are going to go up in my world uh, to some extent. Um, I just I don't know. I don't necessarily see. I feel like I wonder if our measurements of inflation are really accurate. Well, I think so. One of the areas that you had seen a lot of you know significant increases in prices was was in the the housing market, and particularly in owners' equivalent rent. So you saw a lot of uh, saw a lot of rents going up in apartments. But if you look around, you see a lot of cranes everywhere, and there's a lot of construction within apartment complexes that are going on across the country, and that's actually going to start to decrease the uh, the, the rate of growth within rents that are out there. So that's going to actually be a little bit of a help from that standpoint. Can't really help you from the inflation standpoint in terms of college education. That's something that uh, you know is obviously, in my opinion, driven by easy access to, to credit in terms of uh, you know student loans. But from a uh, from a just a typical you know consumer spending standpoint, we do believe that Amazon has pushed prices of groceries lower, pushed prices of of, uh, of, of common goods like um, like like retail goods lower. And from that standpoint, we really think that 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 is here to stay. And I will say, TJ Maxx, I'm, I'm a little familiar with it, much to my husband's chagrin. Hey, Matt, thank you so much. Fun to weigh in uh, on a couple of different topics with you. Matt Brill, Senior Portfolio Manager, Investment Grade Credit, Fixed Income over at Invesco. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.